Well, good evening. Please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 5. For those of you who don't know, Pastor has gone up to Virginia with his family. They will be gone all this week and be back next Sunday. John chapter 5. So for those of you with a very long memory, you'll remember the last time, two times I got to do this, maybe three, I covered, went through John, started in John 3, then John 4, and then the latter half of John 4. So now we're in John 5. I've studied up to verse 23, and we're going to try to get through all of that tonight. If we end up going over or too far over, then I will stop. Or if we don't have enough, then we'll just end early. John chapter 5, starting in verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there was in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool, which is called in Hebrew, Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first, after the stirring of the water, was made well of whatever disease he had. Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity thirty-eight years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already that he already had been in that condition a long time, he said to him, "Do you want to be made well?" The sick man answered him, "Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up." But while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to the man, said to him, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed, and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. The Jews therefore said to him, who was cured, Is it the Sabbath? It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. He answered them, He who made me well said to me, Take up your bed and walk. Then they said, Then they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn a multitude being in that place. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the father do. For whatever he does, the son also does in like manner. For the father loves the son and shows him all things that he himself does. And he will show him greater works than these, that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, how great thou art. You reign over the whole universe and you sustain it with your mighty hand. With just words, you created this universe. And with just words, you heal the lame, the sick, the blind, even the dead. You bring them back to life. Father, we thank you for your many mercies. Please forgive us of our sins. Please enter all of our hearts 
and open our ears so that we could hear what word you have for us, that we could learn from the truth, learn from your word, and apply it to our lives in each and every way. Father, help me as we both know that I am not sufficient for this task and I need you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, the author of this book is John. John, who is the brother of James, one of the 12 disciples. John is also one of the 12 disciples. Um, As far as we know, he is the longest living disciple, um, whereas his brother was the first disciple to be martyred and killed. John has a tendency in all of his books to state things in a very black and white manner. Um, You'll find that out if you read 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, which he also wrote, that he likes to say very tough phrases. Um, Whereas Paul likes to go into detail and explain things out and explain each and every caveat and little side point, John likes to just say the tough things with no fluff, no extra baggage, and move on. So we can have a tendency when reading through John's books to read what it says as if it's another history book and just keep going. Um, But there's a lot of things in between the lines and backgrounds to each thing John says as if he expects us to already know this. So it's a great opportunity for study if you're ever wanting to dig deeper because you have to dig deeper whenever you're reading any of John's works or writings because unlike Paul, he doesn't explain everything he says when he says it. So starting in verse 1, after this, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So it doesn't, John here doesn't specify which feast this is. Um, it's likely either the tabernacle or feast of tabernacles or the Passover We see in the next chapter, in chapter 6, that he goes um, to the Passover. We see that in verse 4. The Passover was approaching, so that would have been the next Passover, if this is indeed the Passover. Um, Or the Feast of the Tabernacles, which is after the Passover. That's what this could be in chapter 5 here. Um, Because the Feast of Dedication, which was the previous event, was in chapter 4, verses 35. So, but John still, he doesn't specify which feast this is, only that Jesus is going up to Jerusalem again, just after he had already been there in chapter 4, or had left Jerusalem to go back up north. Verse 2, now there was in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. Now, this sheep gate is actually mentioned in Nehemiah chapter 3 and chapter 12. If you want some history, you could turn there and look for that. Um, but the word Bethesda here, which is what the name of the gate, uh, the pool is, excuse me, it is transliterated or translated from Greek to mean house of outpouring or house of mercy. So that is even in its name of what it is called. Verse 3, in these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed. And then in your Bibles, it may have a second part there, waiting for the moving of the water, And then into verse 4, for an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred the water, when then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. So the second part of verse 3 and the whole of verse 4 are not in the oldest manuscripts that we have of the book of John, but they're in some of the newer ones that were after that. So whether or not they were in the original is not for us to decide tonight, but it does bring up a very interesting interesting detail here. If you look at the second part of verse 3, waiting for the moving of the water, for an angel went down at a certain time. 
Now, the Bible here never specifies whether this is superstition. It doesn't specify that this actually happened. It just says this is why people were waiting here. But this isn't why Jesus is here. Jesus isn't here to come see an angel, but he's also not here to take the man and dip him into the water. Um, Later on in John, the book of John, in John chapter 9, verse 7, Jesus actually does something with the water nearby, and he tells a man to go wash. I might as well turn there and read that for you. Wash in the pool of, let's see, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So in that one, when Jesus heals a blind man, he tells him to go wash. But in this one, Jesus has absolutely nothing to do with the pool. And, you know, I know you guys may be curious whether or not there actually was an angel or whether or not the water was actually stirred via, via natural means from this multiple streams that would feed into this um, pool, which if you went there historically, it looks more like a reservoir. It's actually huge. Um, whether it was stirred by that or whether it was stirred by an angel doesn't actually matter for this section because a real miracle is about to happen, one that does not involve the water at all, but just Jesus. All credit for the miracle here is going to Jesus and to God alone. Verse 5. Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. Now John emphasizes how old the man is. He didn't have to, but he does. So this man, there, no one can refute that this man has been sick or that he has been sick for a very long time. Everyone should know by now he is very sick uh, for 38 years, almost four decades so when Jesus heals this man, it is also, it's, it's not like false. Everyone can tell that this man is new. He is healed. There's no mistaking or denying this miracle. Verse 6, when Jesus saw him lying there, he knew that he had already had been in that condition a long time. He said to him, do you want to be made well? Now, Jesus knew this man had this condition for a long time, Um. Now, it doesn't say how Jesus knew him, whether somebody told him or if he knew supernaturally, but Jesus did know about this man. But out of everybody, Jesus doesn't talk to anyone else that's sick, not that is recorded here, but he talks specifically to this man. So Jesus most likely also came here for this purpose specifically, to talk to this man. It was clearly God's will that Jesus meet this man. And so Jesus asks him the question, do you want to be made well? Now, this question, it, it seems a bit perhaps redundant. If you're sick, very sick, of course you would want to be made well. But if you start to think about little details and subtleties in this question, perhaps the man had been there for such a long time that he doubted he would ever actually be healed, um, especially considering he needs help to get down into the water. He'll mention that later. But Jesus questions him, do you want to be made well? Not only pointing out the man's illness, but also maybe pointing out hey, do you even want this anymore? Have you, have you been lost in hopelessness, maybe? But also comes a subtle hint with that, that the man could ask Jesus for help, either to actually heal him or to just bring him down to the water. And we're going to see that in the next verse. But this statement, do you want to be made well, it does get this man to admit his need. He cannot save himself in this condition. And to admit this need, and him wanting help, so if he answers, yes, I do want this help, it's, to an extent, humbly admitting his own insufficiency. A very, very creative, clever question by Jesus. Verse 7, the sick man, sick man answered him, 
Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I'm coming, another steps down before me. So the man admits he needs help. But he believes the water is what will heal him, if anything will heal him. Someone else always steps into the water before him. And so you can get the impression from this pool that it is an every man for himself kind of pool. Whoever gets in first gets healed first. That's all there is to it. Um, <laughs> that's, that's pretty cutthroat, especially when you consider that nowadays, um, because of the changing work of the gospel in the world, we have the decency of nurses and attendants being commonplace in our hospitals, sick places. Whenever someone needs help, there's someone there typically to help him. So we can thank the Lord for that mercy. But in this situation specifically, this man doesn't have anyone. He is alone, and he is, in a sense, helpless. Well, completely helpless. Verse 8. Jesus said to him, rise, take up your bed, and walk. So, (laughs) this is kind of funny. Um, I don't know who else gets amused by Jesus, but whenever Jesus speaks, it's always very funny to me because he speaks knowing things. And so, Whenever he speaks, he's establishing a few things when he speaks, establishing a few understood things, that whoever responds when they respond, they admit to those things as well. Um, Not a false hypothetical, but an actual hypothetical. So that's why many times you'll see when Jesus says certain things, his opponents and those who hate him don't even answer because they know. They know he's got them beat and trapped. But in verse 8, Jesus says, rise, take your bed, and walk. This I find hilarious, just because the man previously admitted he can't actually do that. He says, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I'm coming, another steps down. So he even, he even admits to Jesus, yep, I am helpless. I can't move. Someone else always beats me there, and no one is helping me. And then Jesus tells the man, get up. <laughs> I just find that funny. <laughs> so Jesus commands the man to stand challenging his inability. And then we get to verse 9. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed, and walked. So just as God spoke this world into existence, Jesus said words to this man, and he stood, picked up his bed, and walked. Jesus didn't touch the water, had nothing to do with the water, didn't reference a miracle, uh, excuse me, didn't reference an angel. Nothing to do with the water, just rise, take up your bed, and walk. And immediately. Now, the more you read through the Gospels, you'll find that Mark actually uses the term immediately or as soon as, um, words like that. He uses those pretty often, but John doesn't use those very much. The few times John does use them, it's to make the point very clear. So in verse 9, and immediately. Once again, this miracle is, what's the word? You can't deny it. You can't mistake it. Um, False faith healers should take notes here because this man had been sick for 38 years and then was instantly healed. Not enough time to fake, well, too much time to fake an illness, but also he was healed instantly by words, not a slap, not water, nothing, just words from Jesus. It was immediate. Oh, pardon me. I left out the last part of verse 9. And that day was Sabbath. 
My Bible has it split up into a different paragraph, so I tend to miss it. Even when I was studying, I missed it often. But verse 9, and immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked, and that day was Sabbath. So there is something commendable about the man because when Jesus commanded that to him, he actually tried, and he tried to obey that command, perhaps maybe even wondering if he was even able to do it, and yet he did. He stood and he walked. And that day was Sabbath. If you would, please turn your Bibles over to Exodus. Exodus chapter 20. I will start reading in verse 8. Exodus chapter 20, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heavens, the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Now, Please turn over to Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 17. After Psalms, after Isaiah, Jeremiah, Jeremiah 17. We're going to start reading in verse 19. Thus the Lord said to me, go and stand in the gate of the children of the people, by which the kings of Judah come in, and by which they go out, and in all the gates of Jerusalem, and say to them, Hear the word of the Lord, you kings of Judah, and all Judah, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem who enter these gates. Thus says the Lord, Take ye to yourselves, and bear no burden on the Sabbath day, nor bring it to the gates, nor bring it in by the gates of Jerusalem, nor carry a burden out of your homes on the Sabbath day, nor do any work, But hollow the Sabbath day, as I commanded your fathers, but they did not obey nor incline their ear, but made their necks stiff, that they might not receive, no, might not hear nor receive instruction. All right, so we're drawing a clear picture of what God commands of the Sabbath. Now please turn over to Nehemiah 13. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, wait. I believe I've got that incorrect. Excuse me. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job. Yes. Nehemiah chapter 13, we're going to start in verse 15. In those days, I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in sheaves and loading donkeys with wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of burdens, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them about the day on which they were selling provisions. All right, so now that we have a clean picture and a clear picture of not only the commandments about the Sabbath, but also about what the Pharisees or the Jews would accuse Jesus of promptly. So turn back to John 5. 
where we are studying tonight. John chapter 5. All right. Verse 10. The Jews therefore said to him who was cured, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. So they're very clearly referencing to Jeremiah 17 about the man, you're not supposed to carry an item from one place to another. And so this man was carrying his bed on the Sabbath after he was healed. Now notice, they're saying it is not lawful for you to carry your bed. There's a difference here. This man, he was healed, and he took up his bed and was probably going home, carrying his bed. But in Nehemiah, where those people were called out um, for carrying items, they were carrying items to a market. They were carrying items to sell. Um, And the people in Jeremiah, no, not Jeremiah, sorry, Nehemiah, they were carrying these items, they were bringing them to the gates, and they were selling them, and that was wrong. They should not be working their ordinary work, their ordinary employment, and their work on the Sabbath day. Yet this man is not doing that. So this is what, this is the passage that um, the Pharisees or the Jews here were referencing was the Jeremiah passage, but clearly missed out on the spirit of the law of the Nehemiah passage and also of Exodus. This work was your ordinary work. It was the work you did for employment to make money. But this man wasn't making money by carrying his bed. No one was paying him anything. He was just taking his bed because Jesus told him to. Now, please turn over to Romans chapter 14. Starting in verse 5. Romans 14, verse 5. One person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord. And he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks. And he who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat and gives God thanks. So this is a interesting thing to note, in the New Testament, nine of the Ten Commandments are specifically restated, and they're said again. One of them is not specifically restated, and that is the Sabbath. It's not specifically restated in the New Testament for believers to hold. Also keep in mind, Paul never warns believers to not break the Sabbath. He never warns them about, hey, you need to take a day of rest, nothing like that. So as we read in Romans, we are under the new law of liberty, And we don't necessarily have to hold the Sabbath. But with Jesus' situation, it's different. Verse 10. As we already read, the Jews therefore said to him who was cured, it is the Sabbath, it is not lawful for you to carry your bed. So the Old Testament doesn't specify what that work is. We get a hint from Nehemiah that that work is employment, um, your ordinary work, things you do to make profit and make money. So that's what we're going to have to go with. But... Scholars, that's also what they believe it means. But under Jewish oral tradition, um, the rabbis wrote down 39 specific things they considered work and had them in the Mishnah, which is the oral Torah, the the law. Um, And one of those things they considered work was carrying things from one place to another. Not just marketplace things, but anything, including just a bed. Um, Also, this bed, keep in mind, is not a queen-sized bed, you know, wooden frame. It's, a, it's probably a mat, a tarp, not a tarp, but 
something small and carryable. So it probably wasn't work no matter how hard it was. Jesus, by healing this man on the Sabbath day, he broke the oral tradition of not doing anything on the Sabbath day. But he didn't actually break God's law of don't work on the Sabbath day. Jesus never broke any of God's law and fulfilled all of God's law fully, making him the one and only just man, actively righteous and capable of paying our sin debt and interceding for us. We will later see how this is deliberate and how Jesus was purposefully causing a confrontation between himself and the Pharisees. So please turn over to Mark chapter 2, verse 27. Mark chapter 2, verse 27 reads, And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. So that is on a different confrontation with the Pharisees and the Jews, Jesus has. And he is telling them how the Sabbath was made for man, essentially to help man, to be a blessing to man. But they were making it into a burden and restrictive, keeping people from doing things that weren't against God's law. But the Pharisees were saying it's not lawful for him to carry his bed, and that is pious hypocrisy. Verse 11, he answered them, he who made me well said to me, take up your bed and walk. Now, this man is also making a point here, he who made me well. Notice the Pharisees didn't care at all if this man was healed or not. He had been bedridden for 38 years, but they didn't point that out at all. Instead, they just wanted to know who had, why he was carrying things on the Sabbath. He said, he who made me well. So this man first points out that someone had healed him, pointing to the miracle, and then said to me, take up your bed and walk. Essentially, he's saying, hey, this man healed me of a sickness that I had for 38 years. I'm going to obey him. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I have every reason to obey this guy. He healed me. So it's just a funny interaction there. Verse 12, then they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? At least they're being logical and not taking it out on this man, but instead they want to find out who told him these things. Take up your bed and walk. Once again, they don't mention um, who healed him and then told him to take up his bed and walk. They just want to know who told him to pick up the bed and walk. Verse 13, But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, a multitude being in that place. Afterward, oh, that's verse 14. So we don't know why Jesus left immediately, um, but he did later on, we'll see um, in chapter 6, that, no, at the end of chapter 5 and then into chapter 6, sorry, um, multitudes of people are following him, and a lot of them are sick, so clearly word got around fast about this thing that Jesus did. Um, Regardless what the reason was, he left immediately, um, and now he also left this new man to prove his convictions alone, basically, to talk to these people and face them and put his new convictions to the test about Jesus who saved them. It just doesn't say why Jesus left. Verse 14, afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you have been made well, sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. Now, It doesn't specify why this guy was in the temple or why Jesus, well, we could figure out why Jesus was in the temple. He was looking for this guy. 
Jesus wasn't done with him yet. He still had something to tell him. So Jesus said, see that, see you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. So this might draw a few thoughts or references in your mind. So we're going to go to those and read them. Galatians chapter 6. Please turn to Galatians chapter 6. Starting in verse 7. Galatians 6, 7 says, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will reap of the Spirit. Wait, wait. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. Excuse me. Sowing can, sowing sin can reap you disease. Um, But not all diseases are caused by sin. But in this case, Jesus is specifically telling him not to sin anymore, lest a worse thing come upon him. So notice it doesn't say, sin no more like you did once 38 years ago. Jesus says, sin no more. Um, He doesn't say, don't recommit a sin you did a long time ago. So Jesus is calling out the man's current sinful state. Jesus is calling out that this man does not have a reconciled relationship with God. Currently, sin no more. That's present tense, sin no more. Lest a worse thing come upon you. Because there is a lot of worse things than a physical ailment that could happen to you in sin. Either a worse physical ailment or eternal damnation. Verse 15. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. So, Notice, this is another funny thing of the specificity of what's going on here. The man departed and told the Jews, so he was reporting back to them, but he wasn't reporting back to throw Jesus under the bus. Notice what it says, that it was Jesus who made him well. The man once again, or at least John, emphasizes Jesus' miracle and not the fact that Jesus had told him to walk on the Sabbath day. This is furthering the point that the Pharisees don't care about the miracles and don't want to accept Jesus for who he really is. They just care about people breaking their own laws. Verse 16. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. Now, persecuted there is continuing present tense. I'm not sure if that's an actual tense, but it's it's something that keeps on going and it's not something that was once or once in the past, these Jews are continually persecuting Jesus more and more and seeking opportunity to kill him because he did these things on the Sabbath. That alone was their reason to contemplate murder. (laughs) Um, When we read more about the reasons Jesus gave for doing these things on the Sabbath, we'll see that it was on purpose to force this confrontation because Jesus wanted to reveal himself. So now we're into verse 17. And from 17 on to the end of the chapter, to 47, is Christology. It is Jesus describing a lot of things about himself. First off, his relationship with the Father. And that's what we'll be covering tonight in the rest of our time. Jesus' relationship with the Father. So Jesus clearly wanted to reveal himself and did that through forcing this confrontation. There's five ways Jesus claims himself to be equal to God in this section. In verses 17 and 18, he's equal to God in person. 
in verses 19 to 20, he is equal to God in working. And in verses 21, he is equal to God in power and sovereignty. In verses 22, he's equal to God in judgment. And in verse 23, he's equal to God in honor. And 23 is where we will end tonight. Verse 17, but Jesus answered them, my father has been working until now, and I have been working. So we don't know exactly when this took place or when they met, when Jesus started talking, if they had previously started the conversation, regardless. But Jesus then starts with this important line, my father has been working until now. Um, nowadays, there's a lot of people who are confused. When Jesus says, my father, they might think, oh, Jesus is not claiming to be God. He's claiming to be the son of God, like a demigod. Back then, there was no such confusion. These Jews knew exactly what he meant by saying, my father. He was saying, my own father. This is my father, God, and I am equal to him. Anyway, but Jesus answered them, my father has been working until now. Sabbath or not, God is always working, and they know that. And then Jesus ends the verse with, and I have been working. Now, this could be two things. This could be Jesus saying, hey, are you going to also seek to put God to death because he's breaking the Sabbath that he made, (laughs) which is kind of ridiculous um, because God breaks the Sabbath. So did God break the great law? Or it could also be the other one. God works on the Sabbath anyway because he is over, over the Sabbath, and therefore Jesus also works on the Sabbath because he is over the Sabbath. In that way as well, he's claiming to be God and equal to God in works and in actions. Verse 18, therefore the Jews saw all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. See, the gravity of this statement, Jesus says, was not lost on them. They understood fully what Jesus was saying and what he meant. They hate him even more now. So, Jesus calling God his Father was to claim equality with God and to claim equal deity. Either Jesus was the most blatant and wicked of blasphemers, or, the more likely example, he was truly the Son of God to be believed and accepted in faith as Lord. All of these realizations were very apparent on the Jews, so they really, really wanted to get rid of him now. Um, They did not like that second option, that Jesus actually was God. Verse 19. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the Father do, for whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. So this is answering an unspoken question, an unspoken thought, that perhaps these Pharisees are thinking, okay, Jesus is just a rogue agent doing his own thing. Nope. Jesus answered that. Ahead of time, most assuredly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the father do for whatever he does, the son also does in like manner. So Jesus is justifying his actions very clearly and doubling down. Speaking of doubling down, it starts with Jesus saying most assuredly. For those of you who have the KJV, that will say verily, verily. And if you have the ESV, it should say truly, truly. This redundancy is important. It is emphasis extreme emphasis. Jesus is telling him, if you get anything, get this. Don't miss this. This is important. And from here onwards, he ties everything between him and the Father to the end of verse 23. Verse 20. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does, and he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. So, does. 
For the Father loves the Son and shows him all the things that he himself does. This is an active thing. This goes back to verse 17 where God is working, has been working, and so Jesus also has been working. This is a constant thing. Jesus is working, and Jesus will work even on the Sabbath, on and on, doing the will, God's will. And very clearly, Jesus having this confrontation was God's will. And Jesus takes full opportunity of it and uses it to describe himself, himself and his relationship with the Father. Verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them, gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. So, as we see in verse 20, he is equal to God in works. And in 21, he is equal to God in power and sovereignty. The Father raises the dead and gives them life. Even so the Son gives them life, gives life to whom he will. Excuse me. So the Son is equal to God in power as well. Verse 22, for the father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the son. So Jesus is telling them that he is the authority for judgment. So not only are the two persons equal in essence and equal in works and equal in honor, as we'll see later, he is also given judgment, which we'll see again more talking about that in verse 27, which we will not cover tonight. But he's equal to God in that regard as well. And then verse 23, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So the verse starts off with that all should. So that means that this is the whole point of verse 22. Verse 22, for the Father judges no one but has committed all judgment to the Son. That all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father, which should reveal to them his plan. His plan from the start was that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. So the Pharisees should know by that now that both not only Jesus is working towards God's will, but God, Jesus is enacting God's will, which is to honor the Son. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So Jesus is also saying here that he's not an ambassador. I know I used to get that impression a lot when I was young, that Jesus was God as an ambassador to earth. But that's not quite it. Um, he's not an ambassador to the monarch. He is equal to the monarch, equal to God, and deserving of the same honor. So they accused him of blasphemy, but he tells them that to honor the Father, they have to honor the Son. By rejecting his Son, God's Son, and rejecting him, they deny God and blaspheme by accusing him of blasphemy. So he, he fully turns the tables around on them. So, as we know, we should all know, hopefully, everyone in this room, but Jesus is God. And his purpose, one of his many plans of why he came to this earth was to reconcile us to God. Um, and Jesus never broke any of God's laws. Uh, he fulfilled all of them fully. And he came to do the Father's will. And one of those things was to die on the cross for our sins. So if you do not honor the Son, honor Jesus, and accept him as your Savior, you don't honor the Father either. And Jesus is given judgment. So repent, turn to God today. Don't be prideful and hard of heart just like these Pharisees and Jews were, not accepting Jesus. And instead, turn to Jesus and accept him as Lord and Savior because he offers it to all who will believe.
So that is all I have for tonight. Let's pray and then be dismissed. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your many mercies towards us. Thank you that we get to read from your word whenever we want to. Father, please increase our faith. Increase our trust of you. Father, give us boldness to speak the truth. Give us humility to learn the truth. Help us as we go about our daily lives so that we may honor you in everything we say and do. Please help us as we return home, that we would stay safe as we go, and that we would have a good Thanksgiving, being thankful to you for your many mercies to us. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You are dismissed.